Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Harbor, a safe space to have awkward conversations related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Selena Caesar Chavan, who is your host, and we welcome you to enjoy this series where we discover and unpack things around equity and justice that are often not talked about, probably haven't been considered, and ways to advance going forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to The Harbor, a safe place to navigate the storms of equity, diversity, inclusion, truth, and reconciliation. I'm your host, Selena Caesar Chavan, and today I am going to be talking to you about empathy with my two fantastic guests, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. I have Stephanie, and I have Ben. If you can please introduce yourself, Stephanie and why we are here to talk about empathy. Mm. <laughs> yes, all right, hello, hello. My name is Stephanie Nixon. I am new to Queens. I arrived here Welcome. in the summertime. Thank Welcome. you. Yeah, I love it here. Uh, and I came because of some pretty extraordinary opportunities around EDIIA. Mm -hmm. uh, my institutional role here is called Vice Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Rehabilitation Therapy. And what's important to foreground for this discussion is that I am a white settler woman, a straight, cis, able-bodied woman, uh, trying to figure out what is my work to do, given how I'm structured in history. That was a powerful introduction, <laughs> Stephanie Nixon. <laughs> Let me retake that. Hi, my name is... <laughs> Over to you, Ben. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thanks, Lena. It's great to be here with you both. And uh, my name is Ben Carroll. I'm a PhD student in the um, School of Nursing here at Queen's. And um, I'm also a white settler um, from originally from Calgary area, which is uh, Blackfoot and uh, Tsutsina um, territory. That's where I grew up. But I now live in Ottawa on uh, unceded Algonquin territory um, and go to school here. And so uh, I um, am interested in EDI work in my research as well. Mm -hmm. um, most interested in nursing education and how nurses, um, you know, include and exclude people based on the education that they receive and what's in the, who's, who's not visible in the education and who's not thought about how we teach to the kind of the um, highest points of the bell curve and leave out the folks out on the periphery. Those are kind of my people out there in the tales. Wow. Okay. So we're going to have a great conversation because it's it's like we have the the learning and the learner and the lifelong learner and i think we have stuff to teach and to learn from each other so we're just going to take a deep dive into empathy and where it belongs is it, if it belongs are we using the right words what are we talking about how do we get this train around uh, justice is what we actually want and reconciliation moving in a way that supports people and whether that includes um, a, a, a understanding of empathy. So I'm going to start off with you with looking on at getting the ball rolling on empathy as a topic and talking about, you know, problematizing the practice or the theory behind it. What does that look like? And as I, as I read more, as I learn more, I'm starting to understand that 
Empathy might not be all of where it's at because we think it's a panacea or it might be a panacea. I don't know. Can you talk to me about your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. I think that's a great question. And I think um, from my clinical practice or my nursing practice um, includes a lot of nursing education and teaching nursing students. And I think a lot of them come in and a lot of nurses have a, a really sort of um, superficial understanding of empathy. We just sort of hear about sympathy and empathy, um, where empathy is positioned maybe as better than sympathy. Mm. Sympathy is like the short route to pity, um, mm. where you're just sort of seeing all the bad and feeling bad for people. Right. Um, whereas empathy is this ability to understand and share the feelings of another person um, and kind of relate to them in some way. And so it seems a bit deeper. Um, so I think the shorthand is kind of that I know how you feel kind of of sentiment, which I think is very genuine for a lot of people. Um, but I think what it overlooks is that there's that underlying kind of um, you must feel then that behind that, that if I understand how you feel, then you must feel this way that I've felt in some way in the past. And I think those kind of conversations um, kind of, they take a shortcut. They, they, you know, you're not necessarily asking the person how they really feel or finding out the ways that their experience might be different than what you've experienced. And I think for people in the health professions and, and for students that are learning in those, those settings that are so busy and so, so many factors and things going on in your mind um, as you do those things, it can be really, really challenging to then feel that you have the space and the time to sort of get into the other person's experience. If you can find those quick ways where you're hearing their descriptive experience, but then interpreting and evaluating all at the same time, then you can get to the answer faster and then get the action taken and then get the answers and get going. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people that encounter our healthcare system and our health practices, they need that time to explain their nuanced experience in this, that it's not going to be the same as a lot of people who are providing healthcare to them. Hmm. And so um, I think it can be a short route to pity as well. Um, and that within that, there's sort of those inherent risks of dehumanizing or humiliating or disabling people sort of preemptively, where it could be a growth experience or a rewarding experience. Um, relationality, it becomes more of an interaction that's really right, right. just this quick and dirty way of of getting at um, the surface of something. Right, right. And we haven't dug deep because we haven't done that work of listening. And I, I there is that um, uh, Dr. Robert Livingston, who's a, a social ex, uh, psychologist and expert on creating justice in spaces or equity in, in workspaces talks about, you know, the four components to even getting to empathy. And if empathy is the end all be all, and when we, we see something that is wrong, we either we join in, which is, you know, the wrong thing to do, or we ignore it and say, well, you know, that's not my problem. Those are people over there. Or we do feel that that sympathy or that pity, like those those poor people, you know, let me bake them a cookie or something. Mm -hmm. And then there's that empathy of, of feeling that, but 
Can that be a shortcut? Do you actually take the time to understand the holistic of that person, the holistic of that experience? And in fact, do you need to take a walk in someone else's shoes mm -hmm. in order to have that feeling of mm -hmm. compassion or love or whatever is beyond empathy? So I want to turn it over to you before I get into empathy and specifically for, for you, Stephanie. I wanted to talk about the motivations around change making, right? So we had Ben do this really nice introduction where, you know, it's like, is empathy enough? Do, is, do we understand the holisticness of people with that? And so what, what is those, those motivations? Is it altruism? Is it versus, you know, really taking a stand on change making? And how does anti-oppression play a role in all of that? Mm -mm. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm asking you to save the world right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in in three minutes. Three minutes. Here we go. In three minutes. Buckle your seatbelt. Buckle your seatbelt already. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I'll I'll make this. Uh, let me make this the story uh, of me, right? Like this yes. isn't about me talking about other folks. This is me trying to find my way in change making. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who, for many many years, my whole career, I thought I've been doing radical social justice work, mm -hmm. and it's taken me a long time to realize that how I've been taught over and over again, how I've been socialized to think about change making in the world, uh, is a misdiagnosis. Ooh. And it's a trick. And I've been conscripted into re-entrenching the status quo, all in the name of change making. And I think in the universe of that misdiagnosis, when I think about empathy, I think it falls right in that universe. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about it before you invited me to in lead up to this Let's conversation. Explain, unpack that. Yeah. Stephanie. Okay. <laughs> all right. So here's how I forever have been thinking about um, what you described as the train around justice and reconciliation yes, and change yes. making. That when I have, you know, from a, uh, just a, this neutral position over here, just forgetting about who I happen to be, what body I happen to be in, when I hear about or see communities being disadvantaged, historically marginalized, vulnerable communities, the way I feel like I've been taught and that broadly we've been taught to respond is to go and help them. Mm -hmm. Right? Of course. And with a motivation that's altruistic. Mm -hmm. that's, why I'm, that's why I became a clinician. That's why I was driven into the field of public health and bioethics as well, right. was this drive to help. Right. And it's like, what could possibly be wrong with helping? You know, what could possibly be wrong with altruism? Yeah. What could possibly be wrong with empathy? Yes. And I'll tell you what's wrong with it. What's wrong with it is that it's only possible as long as I eclipse my own complicity in the very systems of inequality that are producing the inequity in the first place. Oh, hello, everybody. Stephanie's going to church. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we were going to church today. <laughs> All right. All right. Preach. Go on. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting yeah. the, the sermon, but preach. All right. Here, it, I'm, I'm, let me take one step further. And yes. like I'm, I'm uh, offering up like 20 years of introspection, right? Like yes. this is my own unlearning journey that I'm just right, making a bit right. visible here, which you know has only happened because of the generosity of many black and indigenous grassroots leaders who have, mm -hmm. who have call, you know, called me to account. So yeah, in a nutshell, the idea is that logic only holds 
that it's that it's appropriate for me to feel driven to go help and save and fix folks who have faced these terrible injustices over time. Mm-hmm. That logic of like, oh, I need to show up with altruism and empathy, it only holds as long as my own position is framed as neutral, right. as just default, as just normal. And yeah, that's not the case. You know, like the same forces historically that have marginalized communities have given me a free lift. I didn't ask to be white, but I am. Mm -hmm. And that means I am structured in history to receive profound unearned advantage. Mm -hmm. So if I want to do anti-racist work, it's not about showing up to help or fix racialized folks. The path is not learning more about racialized folks. The path for me as a white person is to learn about structural racism, Mm -hmm. its underpinning of white supremacy, and especially the structure of whiteness. I need to learn about my social identity because I'm not neutral in this system of inequality. There is no neutral. Mm-hmm. I'm complicit. Mm-hmm. And so the orientation to change making, it's this is where altruism and empathy leads leads us astray mm-hmm. because it diverts us from what is a far more meaningful and authentic engagement which is around accountability which is around responsibility, which is showing up sort of circling black back to my intro of figuring out what is my work to do in change making because of how I'm structured in history. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I didn't know we were going to go there today, <laughs> but we are, we're going there today. And, you know, it reminds me of, so we, we often think about you know, this work towards justice and reconciliation as falling into these categories of DEI or truth and reconciliation. And we don't think of it more broadly. We don't think of that self-awareness piece, that emotional intelligence piece that requires us to be self-aware, self-reflective, understanding our positionality, understanding our own motivations and our social interactions and how they've evolved over generations if not just in our own lifetime and what that means. And so I'm going to piggyback on that because in our in our previous conversation, and you touched on it a little bit, I just want you to expand a little bit more. You said a, a very powerful phrase and you said the assumed benevolence of empathy. The assumed benevolence of empathy. Unpack that because it's... I don't think I've ever thought about it before. And I think most people don't, you know, as a, as a cisgendered black woman, you think, well, if people just, you know, thought about a little bit more about walking in my shoes, it'll be, things will be okay. But unpack for us the assumed benevolence of empathy. Yeah, my sense is what's required for us to do meaningful change-making work is that we need to build our capacity for a coherent power analysis. And this idea of a coherent power analysis is the content of many first-year undergrad programs, right? It's not that no one knows, plenty of folks know. But folks like me, who are senior leaders in the health academy, frequently are there by definition because we didn't take those undergrads. And so we have folks like me holding a whole lot of power mm-hmm. to... Uh, decide how budgets will be allocated and policies will be made and, and how curriculum will be set, who are doing the best we can, but without a coherent power analysis. And part of, and for me, a coherent power analysis is anti-oppression. Mm-hmm. What would an intersectional approach, anti-oppressive practice look like? 
uh, in all of these scenarios, right? Certainly in all of my leadership here at Queens. Mm -hmm. And one of the core questions at the heart of that is calling into question the assumed benevolence of the things that we just take as given. Mm. Higher education, it's, it's only a good. Healthcare, it's only a good. Altruism, empathy, they are only good. Right. And rather, bringing a critical perspective, and by critical I mean theoretical, like engaging power, mm-hmm. not critical bad, but critical engaging power to say things are rarely all good. Mm-hmm. But they get framed tacitly as if they are so that we don't pay any attention mm-hmm. to the ways that they can also be harmful. So the, the turn of phrase of the assumed benevolence of empathy is one way of making thinkable that maybe empathy can be both healing and harmful depending on how and when it's deployed mm-hmm. and inviting us to, to pull back the veil to say, wait a second, this thing is not only a good when is it a good so we can amplify it? But when might it be harmful so that we can mitigate or stop those actions? So Ben, expand on that a little bit for me because you've talked about um, empathy as a con- as a concept. You, you started talking about this complexity. Um, and when we think about how we reinforce stereotypes, mm-hmm. how we inaccurately project onto others our own feelings, our own assumptions about why people show up in that bed on that gurney for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, what, what do we as people who are learning, practicing a part of the system need to do differently? And what do we need to continue doing that is working. Yeah, um, I think it's such um, important uh, perspective to to really be able to sort of step back and, and analyze, but also kind of um, reflect and imagine um, back to um, how some of those instances um, feel. And for me, one part of my intro that I didn't. Uh, put in is that I'm a trans man and um, so part of that is um, an identity that should I should one choose it, it's quite medicalized and for me I've had medical trans um, healthcare experiences for which um, those stereotypes of trans experience come into play in the conversation in ways where I can tell this isn't my story this is the healthcare provider reading from stories of any other trans person that they've seen and kind of grafting that in, whether that's how they craft their question and they're asking me a question, is my experience the same as that or not? Um, That's one thing, but if it's assuming then that my experience is the same, then that requires from me, um, rather than genuinely asking me about my experience and how I feel or what I need, I'm needing to correct then their assumption about that and then call in to question their knowledge and they're in a power situation for me because I need something from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I need a prescription or a surgical referral or something from them. And so I have to call in to question that power and say, well, no, whatever part of the trans experience, whether you're getting that from the evidence-based practice, and sure, some of my story aligns with that and some of it doesn't, um, whether that comes from other trans folks that you worked with this matches, that doesn't match. Um, And so that, I think, 
having to make yourself vulnerable, having to repeat those stories, having to share that, I think, um, and I choose to do that work with students. Um, I think I think that creates, and it's well described in like literature as as an epistemic injustice, where your knowledge and having it continually sought is a way of having your knowledge continually questioned about your experience. And so, like, if you're taking the patient's lived experience, them being an expert in their experience, um, then you really shouldn't be necessarily questioning the epistemology of it. They understand their own experience. They've lived it. They might have an understanding that's biased in all sorts of ways. Absolutely. But you can find out about that bias by getting to know them better and asking more questions. Um, So um, I think that one approach that's available um, around that is um, a concept of cultural humility. which is a medical model, um, two physicians back in the late 90s, 98-ish, uh, Tervalon and Marie Garcia, um, from a um, uh, uh, position of um, racial injustice and trying to um, uh, ameliorate that in health. We're looking at cultural humility as more of um, a focus of on knowing the other's experience, um, a refocus on relationality um, with patients, um, taking that humility part on the part of the healthcare provider and being humble um, and saying, I don't know, I don't know your experience. I don't, you could have two identical twins and one gives their full story. The the same identical twin, same biochemistry, same genetics, same everything has had a different experience. They could be Siamese twins. They could be attached. And one has the experience of being on the left and one has the experience of being on the right. Sorry, conjoined twins, I should say. I <laughs> uh, hadn't thought about that till just now. Um, but uh, um, they, have, they have a different experience despite so much shared experience as well. And so that humility of, I don't know your experience and I can't just assume it. Um, and it includes leading to take action, um, so which I would consider compassion. Um, but it also ca- accounts for, um, and it's, I think, foundational, um, in my opinion, that critical reflection mm-hmm. and being able to reflect um, on both your experience and your position as the provider, mm-hmm. the patient's position um, and their experiences, um, and then as well as the structural um context that you're helping that patient navigate in. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those reflections uh, make that criticality of, of mm-hmm. again, not saying it's bad, but of understanding where the gaps and where oh. the barriers are. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you nodding your head all the way through, yeah. Stephanie. Jump right in here because we went to we went to church with you, but we're we're going to class. We're going to like higher education with Ben right now. <laughs> yeah, pull up, push, push up, up those glasses, glasses. Yes. professor. We're yeah. we're going to class. I am taking notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that that's what was coming um, sort of up for me is my own unlearning journey to even start to understand what you're describing here in terms mm-hmm. of how to provide better care for education to trans folks when you're in a cis body like I am. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to connect the dots, if I could, to a comment Please. I made earlier where, so this is about, like, if I think about the question, 
like the beautiful teaching you just offered us, Ben. Mm -hmm. Like, so therefore, what do I do if I'm a cis educator, cisgender, meaning like my assigned um, sex at birth matches the gender I grew up inside? That's me, right? So if I'm a, an educator who's cis with, with the students, if I'm a clinician who's cis with patients who might be trans, how might I think about uh, being in this work in a way that's lined up with the good kind of change making versus the trick we've been had that serves to reproduce the bad stuff? And so earlier I offered the, the example of as a white woman. If I want to do better anti-racist work, it's not about me learning about racialized folks. It's me learning about the structure of racism and the structure of whiteness and understanding how I reproduce that. And I just wanted to offer the same metaphor in this case because I see it time and time again. It is me time and time again where I'm like, ooh, the inequities faced by trans folks in healthcare is so horrendous. Mm -hmm. I, therefore, this, and this is the flawed logic, therefore what I need to do is learn more about trans folks. Mm-mm. The re trans folks are not the problem. The problem is cis-normativity. The structure of cis-normativity that is baked right into education is baked right into healthcare. That is what is producing these inequities. And the way that that structure is upheld is by folks like me who are cisgender not being tuned into what that even means or looks like or my complicity in upholding cis-normativity in these spaces. Mm -hmm. Once I could get, off the, get away from the misdiagnosis of what's needed here is I need to learn about trans folks and rather I need to learn about cis-normativity and myself as a cis mm -hmm. person. All of a sudden, the possibilities for change making are endless and my way of showing up interpersonally mm -hmm. with someone who's trans is I'm able to see them as a human. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. You see them differently. Yeah. You've, you've removed and, and the, the conversations around self-reflection, self-awareness to understand your positionality. I'm liking that we're going into this direction because it could tend to just be about, well, we just need to fix the structure. Well, who's in the structure? <laughs> Do you just fix the bricks or paint them? Like, how is that supposed to work unless we fa face the internal structure? And I, I, I study Ayurveda quite a bit. And what, one of the principles of Ayurveda, for those of you listening who don't know, it's a 5,000-year-old ancient Indian healing system is as is the microcosm, so is the macrocosm. Mm. So we tend to want to fix the structure, the outside. Hey, Selena, come in here. <laughs> come in here and let's just fix the problems. But we have not even bothered to examine ourselves in a way that allows the experience of people who are often marginalized with multiple intersecting identities to show up in spaces and not have, Ben, when you were talking about that experience, I was like, boy, I'm tired just listening to you. Mm. I came in for a problem <laughs> and now I got a, in your head, most of the time, mm -hmm. it's a lot of mental energy. Okay, do I tell them they're wrong? Do I tell them how to fix this? Do I tell them like, this is not my experience, it's somebody else. And then, okay, then I'd have to back up and really explain what that means. And then, and then you're like, you know what? Can I just get the prescription? Can I just go? And at that point, you're like, I don't even know if I want the prescription because I don't actually think you know what I've talked to you about, mm -hmm. about me personally. Because you filtered this whole experience through every other experience that you've brought with you to this point mm -hmm. forward. And how challenging is that at a time in our history when we're seeing a massive number of inequity in our system as well as 
the great resignation. So where do we fill that gap? Um, and Stephanie, if we, if, we could, if we could talk a little bit about, you know, what else needs to be done? You have done a lot of research and I, I, I can't have you on this episode without talking about the coin model, even for a little bit. Um, when, we, when we talk about what else needs to be done, what we talk about the coin model, do we just read it? Do we just read the model and like take it as face value? Do we flip the coin? Do we stretch it? Do we try to make a dollar out of 15 cents? Do we dismantle it? Do we get rid of it? No, I really want to know what we do with the coins right now because we are in a, a state of a lot of crisis and we can't just continue to be in crisis mode. We have to actually figure out what, what we do now. Yeah, what a beautiful invitation. Mm-hmm. You know I love to talk about this. So, <laughs> so here's what the COIN model is. It's called the COIN model of privilege and critical allyship. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of ways that I've tried to share these ideas. Uh, you can Google it. There's an open access online publication from a Thank few years ago. Yes. <laughs> uh, my faculty website, if you Google Stephanie Nixon and Queens on the faculty website are all kinds of videos and other primers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What's most important to know about this model is that nothing in it, other than the metaphor itself of using a coin, the, the, the ideas, they're not new and they're not mine. They're not new and they're not mine. What the coin model is, is a way of translating or trying to, seeking to translate core ideas about anti-oppression. Mm. And these are ideas that have been around for decades and generations, developed by black and indigenous thinkers mm-hmm. who have been trying to speak these lessons to people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and my slow waking up to these ideas, the more I came to understand them, thanks again to the present day carriers of these wisdoms, right? These awesome struggle leaders who have um, given me, you know, allowed, allowed me to earn their trust a bit and have built my own capacity. The more that I came to understand these lessons and the misdiagnosis the misorientation, Mm -hmm. uh, the more I looked for ways to talk to other, to understand myself, how I got in this mess, but then how to communicate it to others. And so I was using the metaphor of a coin. And so the coin itself in this metaphor stands in for historic systems of inequality, Mm -hmm. the isms, the Mm -hmm. cis-normativity in that example, the structural racism, settler colonialism, ableism, these big social structures that were created very intentionally by some to deploy power over and to to dehumanize others Mm -hmm. and are so pervasive that they have structured our society, all its institutions, and even our bodies, ourselves, Mm -hmm. and how we either find ourselves on the top or the bottom of these coins, depending on who we happen to be. Not, Not linked to merit, not linked to worth, but I happen to be white, so I find myself on the top of the coin of racism. Mm -hmm. I happen to be a woman. I didn't ask to be either of those things. And yet I find myself on the bottom of the coin of sexism. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, like this is the core message within this frame is if you find we're all on the top of some coins and the bottom of other coins at the same time, right? That's intersectionality gifted to us again from black feminist thinkers. Mm -hmm. You got it. Kimberly (laughs) Crenshaw, Patricia Hill Collins and others. Yes. 
So uh, the big message in this coin frame is is the lesson I continue to be learning, which is that if you're on the bottom of a coin, because the point the problem's not the bottom of the coin, right? The people on the bottom are not the problem. Mm-hmm. That's how they're framed in most EDI work. Yeah. We don't have enough people on the bottom. We need to need more people on the bottom. We need yeah. to deal with the problems for people on the bottom. Oh, yeah. People on the bottom of the coin are not the problem. The problem is the system of inequality that is baked right into our, our health care, our higher education, and the rest of it, policing, the judicial system, and on and on it goes. That's what needs to be dismantled. And the related problem is the complicity of folks who find themselves on top mm-hmm. and how we have been taught our whole lives that the way to do change making is to never know there's a coin or a top of the coin, mm-hmm. to only think there's the people who are oppressed, who are marginalized, and that they need our help. That's the misdiagnosis. Yeah. Meanwhile, they're at the top of the coin applying that actual pressure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're not going to try to make a dollar out of this 15 cent coin because we need to like deal with the coin. So we're not going to make a dollar out of it because we don't want more of the same thing. We want something different. And Ben, you talked about epistemic injustice. Mm-hmm. And I just love that 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 phrase it was, it's so beautiful and our ways of knowing sitting at the top of the coin you know understanding or not understanding or being oblivious to the coin itself mm-hmm. and how that continues to manifest itself because we just choose mm-hmm. not to know or we just choose to assume that our own knowing you know, or we've done some homework on trans. We've done some more. I, I read how to be anti-racist, so mm. I'm I'm good with black people. Right. And you, you have a couple of little nuanced pieces, and you bring that to bear, and forget that you're actually standing. And as you're celebrating your reading of these books, you're jumping on the coin mm. and putting more pressure right. on the people that happen to be underneath it. The people that actually have a lot of power because they've navigated these heteronormative spaces. And some of us have been very successful at doing it. So we have that power. Talk to me, Ben, in in the last remaining moments of this podcast, if you could talk to us about your own personal experiences as a student, a teacher, in nursing practice, or or in patient experiences. How do we sum this up so people get a nice picture? You've drawn a couple pictures for us today. But if you give us a nice picture of what the how this manifests in nuanced ways we've we've come to the realization that empathy may or may not work but in terms of its complexity what mm-hmm. what do you offer in our finally final moments of this brilliant conversation yeah i think i think um i i I think you really kind of put a pin on it in terms of thinking of like the coin pushing mm-hmm. others underneath. I think of that whenever I hear somebody saying we're going to leverage our diversity because I think it makes it sound as though the institution is going to use that that um, fulcrum to elevate people on an, the other side of a seesaw or something when in actual fact, um, folks who are equity of equity seeking, seeking communities are not not on the other side of the seesaw, they are the fulcrum. They're the ones being leveraged upon. Oh, so it, it's that's how institutions that say they're going to leverage their diversity are actually doing that. And so um, that turn of phrase... around that because I say that sometimes. Yeah, oh, gosh, I don't like... It, well, that's how I've just assessed that, <laughs> that it's that kind of throwaway diversity 
statement that I think mm-hmm. is like the throwaway empathy. I know how you feel. Yeah. Meaning you you must feel the way that I think you probably feel. feel. <laughs> um, that isn't that that sort of deeper kind of thing that cultural humility allows for individuals. But then how do we do that collectively? And I think um, I think there is a greater movement. Um, brewing, and I, th- I think there is sort of, to get back into the theory side of it, like an ontological turn that's moving towards more collectivist thinking, and I think we're all part of that, and I think like we've drawn elements of that in there, but that are really turning against all of those dualisms, that you know, self versus other is like the biggie in this conversation, of course, but I mean it's supported by the humanities and the social sciences and the sciences, that nature, culture, side of it and seeing, you know, different peoples or regions um, as economically or culturally more primitive or more developed and that kind of thing, or the mind-body dynamic, all of those things with Ayurveda, like that's all integrated. It's all one that you're knowing and being and doing at once. Mm-hmm. Like these things can't be pulled from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, your epistemology is your ontology. Yeah. I, they, they are, they're together. They, you have one and you have the other. Um, and so these dualisms, there's um, an environmentalist named Deborah Bird-Rose who said that like a feedback loop of increasing, um, these dualisms create a feedback loop of increasing disconnection and our connections to people um, and our connections to the world outside of ourself are less and less evident to us and more and more difficult to sustain and experience as real the more we dive into dualisms and that and dividing things up into these paired opposites mm-hmm. um, because they fuel our capacity to isolate ourselves right. from each other. And really what the human condition is about is, is making connection. Um, and um, so I think, I think um, when it comes to like experiences, I just, um, you know, I'd love to have a, and I can think of half a dozen personal or clinical experiences um, or student experiences. But I have to draw from a paper that I read Mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic. And it was about a patient, um, a a nurse who was writing about a patient who was isolated in a hospital in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And so the only people that she saw during the day were masked um, healthcare providers who were coming in to do tasks and trying to minimize speaking even so that you know, there weren't um, droplets and all sorts of stuff. Um, and so just seeing them for short periods of time. And this person related how they coped by becoming friends with the tree that stood outside their window. And so this was the really the only true living thing that they saw on a consistent basis, the same living being that they saw on a consistent basis for their whole COVID experience in the hospital was this this friend of theirs, this tree that I think really speaks to a lot of, there's a, just a lot of theory theorists right now. Kim Talbear out of University of Alberta um, has stuff about the spirituality of inanimate objects and things and from an indigenous perspective, how, you know, I come from Calgary and there's the big rock near Okotoks is a spiritual place. Like, and that rock is alive. Um, the mountains are alive, you know, Turtle Mountain, um, it moves very slowly and it has landslides all the time. And it's like, it's, there's an understanding of that geology as a living thing. Um, and so I think, I think there is a greater movement to that in that understanding of 
There's a climate crisis. There's inanimate things that we value more greatly than people all of the time. Yeah. Um, it's not difficult to see that someone will go to great lengths to save their phone <laughs> or go find their phone and drop, you know, it, in favor of inanimate objects. We can, we can value these things greatly. Yeah. Um, so can we do that for other living, non-human or more than human right. relationships and relationalities? Right. And I think... I think that's where that deeper sense of empathy and compassion then to take action needs to, how we need to sort of reframe our thinking and seeing all of that interconnection, right? That, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing in the world that hasn't existed outside of the relations that it exists in already. Right. Yeah. That every, you know, atom in our being was all there at a big bang, like yeah. together. So... Like there's nothing in us that has existed independently of everything around it at any point in its history of being in the universe. So yeah. if if it's kind of one of those brain benders, but Yeah. No, I like um, how you went to this philosophical yeah. side because, You asked for a personal side, but Yeah, no, 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 no. It it, it exposes your, your personal side. It exposes that. I often say I'm I uh, in my research and study that we are researching, but we are actually re-searching mm-hmm. stuff that has already been found, but mm-hmm. because of ways of knowing, of the the powers that be that hold that ontological and epistemological perspective in a very structured Western system that, you know, in order for you to be published or to do other things, you have to fit in this box those have been forgotten Mm -hmm. or left behind. But we are searching for stuff that, quite frankly, may have already been found. But Stephanie, I'm going to go to you for closing Mm. comments. I know, I know we're at the end here, but this has been so great. And we saw the philosophical side of Ben, the just beautiful vulnerability. I just want to take it home. What, What are you thinking? What closing thoughts do you have? I'll share that what I've learned from this beautiful time with you both is that I'm confused about empathy. (laughs) I'm not sure. You know, I love empathy. It has such an important place in my world and my life. But when it comes to change making, when it comes for the train, for justice and reconciliation, at this point, in this moment, I am diagnosing empathy as a distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. As a distraction, as a distraction. You know what? This conversation, and I had to look it up on my on my computer as we're talking, is about reframing, rethinking, doing things differently because we don't have to follow the same paradigm. We don't we don't actually need the fulcrum or the about we could go somewhere else. We don't need to stay with the coin. We don't need these systems that, you know, we actually understand. And it reminds me of um, Bell Hooks' book, Yearning. You know, at the end of the book, at the end of um, Choosing the Margin, one of the chapters in the book, she says, I can make a definite distinction between that marginality, which is imposed by oppressive structures, and that marginality one chooses as the site of resistance, as location for radical openness and possibility. We need to think, we need to just throw away the whole box 
the fulcrum, the, <laughs> what's on top of it? The levers. Yeah, yeah. And like think about the possibilities that exist outside of that through self-awareness, through that mindfulness, through that deep introspection of self, understanding how you know, why you know, where you got that from, and what's missing from this conversation. This has been an absolutely beautiful, almost an hour together. I know. <laughs> I know, where did the time go? I feel so energized. I was saying before I got here that I was feeling somewhat not energized. I feel full. You have filled my cup. And to our listeners, to everybody who's part of the harbor boating crew or whatever this is, I want to offer thank you. Any closing words before we head out, Ben? Um, I think I think if, if folks can find in time in their practice just a time, I think that's um, to even notice. Um, I think that was maybe the key to that that paper was that nurse took the time to notice that this patient yes. and understand their experience of how did you cope with this isolation? Yeah. And that person was striving for connection and couldn't find it in the healthcare people who were stretched. Yeah. Yeah. And so found the time and found the time to write about it so that it had an impact on. And um, I think it only has to be glimmer, glimmering things, glimmering little pieces to pick up, but picking up a thread. Um, it's, it's you're picking up our humanity, yeah. those frayed fabrics of our humanity. Yeah. This is the second time I'm going to say this today, that the worst feeling I've ever had in the world is somebody not seeing me. So you're absolutely right. That nurse went to the margins, mm -hmm. did something different, and saw a couple of closing sentences from you, Stephanie Nixon. Mm. I'll leave with the reflection that for a long time for me, trying to come to understand that I've been structured by these big intersecting systems and that my job was to learn and about myself and excavate my own complicity, it felt too big, mm. it felt too overwhelming. Uh, and I now can see that as a tactic of the systems of inequality, oh. making me think that I'm not up for this. And once I was able to move beyond that, I've got to tell you, it is the most energizing thing. It is the most liberating thing, this idea of approximating the feeling of being in right relation. Like it just, it changes everything in terms of possibilities for action. Things are no longer so difficult. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a beautiful way of moving in the world that I'm striving for. And every time I'm in it, I feel so lucky to be there. So for any of the listeners who are feeling like, yeah, that's pie in the sky. It would be nice to get, we'll never get rid of those coins. It's like, oh, that's, that's all right. That's actually not the question here. Are we going to get rid of the coins? It's rather, how am I going to move differently tomorrow when I wake up yeah. to be part of resisting those coins going right. forward? Right. It's a decision. It's a decision that we make every day, every minute, every hour. I would like to thank you both for being with us in the harbor today. Safe place to talk about just about anything even the harms of empathy. <laughs> Thank you to our guests, Stephanie and to Ben for a, such a beautiful, spirited conversation that I'm sure filled my cup and I'm sure will fill the cups of all of our listeners. Thank you so much and have a good day. Thank you.